to really believe that Jehovah has the last say. Because you know what you've earned. You know what you deserve. You know the stuff that keeps you up late at night. The stuff that wakes you up early in the morning because you're wondering when the person is going to find out. All the skeletons are in your closet. So you ought to be grateful to know that God has the final say. Too much is left up to our own ability these days. And I'm just grateful to be in a place where you know that you serve a God who is able to change things, a God who is still concerned about your situation, a God who, if he can care about what's happening to the birds and the lilies, if God cares about the sparrows, don't you believe God doesn't care about you, your dreams, your businesses, and your failures? You ought to be grateful that you don't have a reason to fear today. I'm grateful to be here uh, with you. Um, in your pastor's absence, I still want to say thank you because he's been very gracious to me and with me. We had to do Jude 3 together. And you know, nothing makes you friends with somebody quicker than being under fire together. So, you know, I'm from Dallas, Texas, so I was about that life. I'm like, you know, we're going to get out of here. All right, pastor, don't even worry. I got this. So since then, we've been tight. Um, and to your leadership and to the amazing ministers and leaders who create Kaya, I'm extremely grateful. Um, I want to just uh, talk about some simple things together before we have some time with Dr. Dyson. But I still want to begin in prayer. God, we love you. We believe in you. We have a great expectation of what you will do in us and through us, God, we ask that you do what you always do, that you go beyond our beliefs, God, that you open our hearts, that you give us reason to expect more from you. So do what you will in this place. As a matter of fact, show us what you're working with in a way that we've never seen. This is your servant's prayer in your son Jesus' name. Amen. When we talk about culture and Christianity today, I, I think in a post-Christian society, it's almost a joke of a conversation. In a post-Christian society, we don't feel like Christian, Christianity influences culture most times. And if we're honest, it's true. Uh, Christians have become the people who eat dust instead of blaze trails. You know, we jump on things after the world has dominated it. You know, it's like people who after uh, Instagram was hot, they were like, the church is now on Facebook. Like we were supposed to be excited because we were already off of it. You know, we get to this place where we begin to... Uh, chase after whatever the world is, is doing. And I think the real issue with culture and Christianity is that we all want to be seen. And it's difficult sometimes because it feels like we're working behind the ball, right, to be seen. And so what we do is we create things, and for the sake of making it palatable to other people, we slap Jesus' name on it. Because we don't really believe Christianity is valuable in ways other people do. We know it's valuable because of all the capitalistic things they do with Christianity. Like all the shirts of uh, shirt makers, the people that you see all over Instagram, they ain't never walked into nobody's church, ain't never opened up nobody's Bible, couldn't pray for you if their life depended on it, but they saying stuff like, God is dope. Jesus is real. And it's nice and it's true. But guess what? We're not the ones who are creating these things. Other people create them and then sell them to us as truth. And so I have this uh, data and research company called the Black Millennial Cafe, and 
What I appreciated about it is that I did it because when I was doing my doctoral research, I happened to be the only researcher in the country who held qualitative and quantitative data on black millennials and faith. When I did it, I only did it because I wanted to create a discipleship curriculum and you can't write curriculum about a group of people you don't know. And while I am a millennial, I'm a church millennial from way back. Like when they were playing the music, I was like, baby, y'all better stop. <laughs> Cause sugar, I like to shout, okay? And so I realized I had to do some research in order to find out who I was really dealing with. Well, I didn't realize the value of what I had. Because after I had the research, I was getting calls from Hollywood. I was getting calls from politicians and organizations saying they wanted to uh, work with me. So I got a call from one of the top three talent agencies in the country. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was getting ready for my close-up. You know, I think I got a little personality. And so they were like, you know, we represent Issa Rae and Kevin Hart. We really want to work with you. And I was like, I had to make sure the bundles was right, you know. <laughs> okay. And then they were like, we want your data. I was like, well, all right then. Let's see what we can do with this. Because they realized how valuable it is to have data on black millennials and their faith beliefs. To the point that I, you know, I believe in negotiating, right? What people won't do is rob me. Now they might talk about me, they might disrespect me, but rob me, they will not. And so I said, well, I can't give you data to create something that I'm not a part of because what I have to do is be accountable to my community. And I can't give you statistics to use them as a gimmick because I can't go back home like that, Tiffany. I got, I got a whole community to go back to. So they said, well, what, what, what if we offer you the opportunity to get behind <clears throat> spiritual programming and figure out what the community needs? And I said, sure, I'm down for that. Then they started to talk to me about a number of social media Christian influencers. So I said, listen, if that's where you're going, leave me out of it. I don't need no more fake, half-done, half-baked Christian sermons going viral. And I know some of y'all that hurts your feelings because you like them, and I understand because sometimes it's just where you are in the moment. But what I do know is people cannot continue to grow and consume this in a way that makes it seem like it's real and it's valuable when it's not. But that's because I actually value Christianity. And it's more than just this pep talk for Jesus. Because if the Jesus you serve ain't never about that life, that's not Jesus. So we get to the point where we're really trying to negotiate, and I realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. Master P was selling CDs out of his trunk. When he got a deal for a couple million dollars, that's when he called everything off because he realized how valuable he was to people. So when production companies come to me, sometimes I do work with them, and other times I say, no, nah, I could do it better myself. Because I cannot sell my community out for a need to be seen. And we have a culture that really wants to be seen. I mean, they'll do anything for Jesus, supposedly, right? So you got twerk contests, and the next thing I know, somebody got a song I talk about twerking for Jesus. I'm not saying don't twerk. I'm just saying leave Jesus out of it. You know, when I was growing up, they said, you know, if you can't take Jesus with you, don't go. <laughs> Some places, if you got to go there, send Jesus with me if I'm doing right that day. <clears throat> so we have this need to be seen. And so the problem is, as a generation, because culture makers are usually young adults, 
and young adults are going to be millennials around this time, or you're millennial-ish. Young adults make culture. Generations ahead of them benefit from culture. <clears throat> because the people who are making culture don't have an end game. You can't see beyond what you want today. I'm trying to get 50,000 followers so I can become an influencer. Do You do know this is not going to last forever. Likes are not always going to be the currency that we use. And so while we're thinking about what we can get today and trying to sell some flat tummy tea with a big stomach, <clears throat> people generations ahead of us are actually deciding what they need to do 10 years from now to take care of what is happening today. And you know, I think we should learn something from Apple. Every time Apple releases one product, they have generations ready to go that they're perfecting. And here's the problem with wanting to be seen. Sometimes we want to be seen so badly that we don't want to endure the process. We don't believe in process anymore. We want to just be an overnight celebrity. And everybody has to be a celebrity. Everybody, I'm okay. Everybody, so much so that I'm sure there is a janitor somewhere with a social media page with like tens of thousands of followers because he like dances or something, right? Police officers have social media pages. They become influencers. Teachers become influencers. Nobody is appreciative of, what the, of the impact they have locally. And so I remember when things started to change in my life, and you know, God has blessed me in a lot of ways. And I remember when I started to be on flyers, and I would go back and hang out with my friends, and they're like, if I see one more flyer with your face on it. But I have friends who are teachers, and nurses and experimental psychologists, and they're never gonna be on the flyer. But the work that they do is valuable. So then I begin to manage it, like what do I do with my friends so that this public stuff never gets in the way of our private relationships? Because this is what happened generations before, we did have people who needed to be seen. I mean, realtors were on buses and benches, right? We got to see families who were own companies and they had full-on commercials, but like songs that you would sing. And then all of a sudden, social media came and it became accessible to us in ways it had not been before. And so we'll make a flyer for anything. Don't nobody gotta be booking us. We'll make an announcement on a flyer. I got friends who got headshots and they nurses. I'm like, when they use your headshot, girl? <laughs> and then they'll announce. What you announcing today? It's my 35th birthday. <clears throat> okay. Why you got your cash app on there and you got seven followers? Who is about to do this for you? <laughs> but we just want to be seen. And we want to be seen. We do things that make us desperate, like pretend to be about justice because we think it's the thing to do. Well. Or we try to pretend like we're for our community when the truth is, if we have one somebody offer us two some things, we gone. And so we do things with a good cause, and we use a good cause, but we don't always have the right heart. But we have to get to the place where we're going to stop eating dust and start blazing trails. We have to stop saying, oh, the world created Facebook. Let's jump on there and see how we're going to use it. Nobody knows what a Christian community needs like Christians. Nobody knows what the black community needs like black people. But guess who are creating things for black Christian communities? Maybe white evangelicals at best, maybe atheists, maybe agnostics. Why are we not creating the things we need? You know why? Because we don't go through the process in a way that allows us to see the holes. 
When you actually follow the process, no one knows the needs and the lows like you would. When we want to skip it and become a celebrity overnight, we miss those holes and we cannot create what has not been created. Why could I be a black faith researcher? Because I worked at a mega church in Dallas for 10 years. Because I went to school and did what I needed to do. And at some point, I was in school trying to figure out, okay, I'm working at a church in Oak Cliff. We're more than 50% under 40, but we can't get uh, young adults to do A, B, C, and D. So I said, let me create a discipleship curriculum. And that discipleship curriculum will help to bring them in in a way so that once they're disciples, we can understand who they are and, and deploy them to do the things that are necessary. Well, when that couldn't happen without research, I did research. Then I'm left with this research and everyone's saying, hey, we want to give you a book deal. We want you to tell the world how to deal with black millennials. I said, I didn't make this for the world. I did this for my community. So I write for my community and I pick you up on book number two if I feel like it. And so I created a young adult curriculum. Why? Because who knows better what my community needs than me? I've been working in it. And then when that uh, did well, I started to say, well, you know what? We don't have enough black faith researchers. I'm going to start a company because nobody is going to find me begging for what I could do for myself. And we got to get to the point where we stop asking someone who's already done a piss poor job to do what we could do with excellence. When you actually go through the process, you can see the holes in what you're doing. You can find your niche. The problem is sometimes we see the holes and we find our niche, but we can't sit and listen for the call. When we see a problem, we want to jump on it. But you have to know what God is calling you to do for that problem. Because what happens is we find the problem and we're committed, but we're not called to a certain thing. And commitment will allow you to see the problem, but the calling will give you a vision for generations to come. If the only thing you want to do is become an influencer today, get, you know, 100,000 likes and see what you can do with that, that's not a vision. You got a little bit of sight, but you don't have vision. And we are not going to change this world unless we have vision, but you can't have vision until you hear the call. What is the call to the moment? We have a horrible education system. What is my call to the education system? We have a prison pipeline, prison pipeline, what is my call, not just to see it. Sometimes your call is just to expose it. I was sitting on a plane today, and there was a lady who was in uh, software and data, and she was talking about the algorithms that they use for facial recognition. And she was saying, because the algorithms are created by white males, usually they can't identify black people any higher than a 65% rate. What does that mean for the criminal justice system? So I said, well, friend, what you doing? She said, I call together a group of diverse people who work in the field so that we can continue to expose it. That's her call to the moment. Some people have a greater call to the moment to go in and say, listen, this is how you should do algorithm. This is an inclusive algorithm that you use to make sure we don't have this issue. Some people are called to start a company. We don't all have the same call. But in this world, when you're trying to be seen, it's hard to hear. If I'm so busy performing, I don't have the space to sit and listen when God is not speaking. Because this is what we do. Dear God, I know that you want me to spend some time with you. 
and I know you've allowed me to see this issue, so speak, God. My followers miss me. Let me tell them what I'm doing right now. We give God a short little leash, don't we? And if God doesn't do it really quickly, we gotta go. But we have to spend the time sitting because once you get the call, you can go for broke. You can go for broke because you're clear about what happens. Um, I know that you guys know this story pretty well because I remember um, Pastor Wesley uh, preaching on it, talking about Mary when you know God comes to Mary and says you're gonna be with child. And what I love about the story is Mary doesn't get a whole lot of details. She packs on a promise. You may be stuck because you don't have a promise. And so we get to prayer and we're like, God, why is my business suffering? Or God, you know what I mean? Why am I not getting exposure? Or God, why am I not figuring out the, the solution to these ideas? Well, you don't have a promise. You want to hold God to something that you want God to do for you. You know? We, we have these ideas for our life. My life was not supposed to be a researcher. That's not what I wanted for my life. I had bigger dreams, I promise, and they were like much cooler and sexier than being a researcher looking at numbers all day. I had better things for my life, but that's not what God had for my life. And so I remember times when I felt like life was horrible and nothing was going my way, and I'm sitting there arguing with God. You know, the promises of God are yes and amen, and God, you said, asking you shall receive, and seeking you shall find, and knocking it shall be open unto him. For anyone who asks, they shall receive. And I ain't receiving up in here. But what was the promise? I didn't have a promise. I didn't have a promise. We want God to make all these major moves in our life, and we don't even know the moves we're supposed to be making. And I'm not mad at you for being in that place. I'm only like three years out of being in that place. I was like, I think I got to number five to pastor a church out of over 120 applicants. And the only reason it didn't crush me that I wasn't called to pastor that church was because that the day they called me was the same day I buried my daddy, and I didn't have no more room in my heart to be hurt. But I was certain that when you're a preacher, the next thing you do is what? Pastor. And when you've been to school, you teach as a professor. So I was teaching as a professor for three years, and then in August, I was like, this is not what God is calling me to do. I don't even like these kids no more. <laughs> mm -mm. Then I was in adult education, and the adults were getting on my nerves. I mean, I just didn't even have any more patience for them. They'd be like, Reverend Bree, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, my grade. And I said, okay, I think I need a grade change. Okay, what, how do you think I erred in giving you this grade? Well, you didn't, but my company won't pay for it unless I get a, go sit down. <laughs> I just didn't have the patience anymore because it wasn't what I was called to do. So I had to figure out what God was calling me to do in that moment. And I was scared because I like Gucci, <laughs> okay? <laughs> well, I don't mess with Gucci no more. Tiffany, don't tell them people that I don't mess with, we boycotting. I got, I got to use what I already got, but I ain't buying no more. <laughs> you know, I ain't buying no more. I was in there the other day, but I said, you know what? Did we make amends yet? The lady said, I'm not sure. I said, well, call me when you know. <laughs> and so I had to get to this place. But what I don't want to sell you is a beautiful story, so let me be very honest with you. 2013, oh, let me be very, very honest with you. At the beginning, no, at the end of 2012, I go on a silent retreat. Can you tell silence is hard for me? And um, I think by January, I got suspended from my church because my executive pastor tried me, and I was not for it. 
And so we got into it. He said, you know what, when you said that I wanted to snatch you, I said, I wish you would, I wish you would, because I got something that'll hold you. I'm telling you, it was a bad, it was a bad time. Dr. Dyson, it was a bad time in my life. Because once you get to the point where you probably need to back out of something, don't nothing really go right. So that was January and March. My only sister went on life support, and she died holding my hand. I was so upset with God. I remember I would start to pray, and I would say, I'm not going to pray. Obviously, you don't care about me anyway, that you would break my heart in this way. So I eulogized my only sister. I go back to church on Easter. I know Easter seemed happy, but when you're grieving, you don't want to keep hearing about the man that died. So two months from the day I eulogized my only sister, I'm on the 35 South in my two-door little car work for the church, so it was like 10 years old. And there was an 18-wheeler on my left-hand side carrying industrial forklifts. They went under an underpass, and I saw it tilt a little bit. And that looks too much like Fast and Furious, so I didn't really think it could fall. So I'm like, the only prayer I could pray was not on my head. I was less than two inches away from decapitation. I was left with permanent spinal damage. I was pursuing a PhD at Baylor, and I was sitting in ER with my pastor and employer at the time, Freddie Haynes. And we were talking, he was like, Bree, you don't have no HBCU street cred, you know? And it's funny, because we didn't know I had spinal damage at the time. Maybe he knew something greater was wrong, but I didn't yet. And he said, you should consider doing a D-man, you know, just in the interim. I was like, oh, no, God didn't call me to no D-man because I was an educational elitist. I said, God did not call me to that. God called me to a PhD. He said, Bree, I got a D-man. I was like, well, that's your business. <laughs> so he said, you should really consider this. And so I did, and I go to Virginia Union. I had never been to an HBCU. Whoop, whoop, you heard it, heard it. <laughs> I had never been to an HBCU, and I get there, and I really don't know how to operate out of a PhD. So I want to do this research project, and Allison Geis Johnson, as a matter of fact, they were already closed. Jeremiah Wright, John Kenny, and Freddie Haynes all had to call for them to even get me in the program. And so I get there, and Allison Geis Johnson is like, do whatever works for you. See, that doesn't happen in white institutions. But at this HBCU, they said, let her fly. And I was doing this research, and I remember we would sit down, and they would say, do you really know what you're doing? Do you really know the impact it's going to have? I'd be like, mm-hmm. And Dr. Guy Johnson would say, she doesn't, and just leave it alone. And they were like, Bree, do you know the impact of this research? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, just, just leave it alone, she doesn't. And so I do this, and you know, recognition comes, and companies are coming, and I'm appreciating what's happening. My dad dies. Life is tough in a lot of ways. I'm still working for the church, but we ain't working no more because I shouldn't have been there anymore. I'm not blaming anybody but probably disobedience or not sitting down long enough to hear that my time was up and I should have been doing something different. And so we were still producing, but we weren't flowing like we used to. Then I'm at the school working at Jarvis Christian College. They had a Dallas campus. And I'm starting to make these tough decisions. Like I would get a call from Wheaton to come and lecture with David Kinnaman, who's the president of Barna. And I would say, am I going to teach that today? 
And I started to really, I was, it was difficult for me to choose what I should have been faithful to, which was my job. And so over the summer, I said, I'm not doing this to them anymore. Because at some point, we're going to get to the point where my work of research is going to call me away, and I'm not going to want to do what they're paying me to do. And I need to have better integrity than that. And so I quit, and I was very afraid in September, October, November. But I was making it with ease. In December, everything hit the roof. I mean, my payroll check didn't clear because they said my signature was off. So I had to double pay until they cleared it because your employees don't care about your signature and what else you got to do. And then they lost a box of books. We lost our biggest donor. Everything was horrible. And so I said, you know what? This is not real. You know why I knew it wasn't real? Because I had a promise. And I said, I'm not going to stay in bed. I'm not going to get sad. I'm not going to worry. This is all right. I go to Atlanta to work because I'm doing a State of the Black Church project. I partner with Barna to do it. We haven't had empirical data in 21 years. I get a phone call. I have a $35,000 project. One week later, I get another phone call. I have a $27,000 project. In one month, I did about $60,000 in contracts. Because I packed on a promise. I was clear about what God called me to do. I spent time to hear that call. And in August, I went for broke. If you are doing the right thing as a Christian, you will find the holes that the, that the culture doesn't even know they need. And you will fill those holes in ways that other people will think is remarkable and it will seem simple to you because all you did was sit and hear what God had for you. I pray that your witness will impact culture, not to be seen, but because you've heard and you can see the needs of others. Amen. So first of all, good evening. You're repping the Lakers hard in here right now. Let's turn it on. How many of you know that Dr. Dyson has a new book out? Hello, hello. Okay. Okay. So I made sure um, I spent some time reading it, and I just want to talk to you about culture and ask you a couple questions and see if we can bounce a couple of ideas off of each other mm -hmm. about Christianity and culture. I guess my, my first question would not probably, the first question is probably normally, why do you write a book on Jay-Z? Beyond that, mm. what made you see the humanity in Jay-Z enough to decide that he was more than just a rapper and an icon, someone to actually legitimately be studied? Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to be here to hear your great uh, lecture and, and presentation. Thank and, you. And uh, Dr. Wesley and, and Dr. Fentress Williams, it's just great to be here. Um, you know, I wanted to write a book about Jay, first of all, for very practical reasons. He was about to turn 50. Right. And then he had been in the 
hip-hop game for 30 years. And hip-hop was about 40 years above ground, 1979. And uh, so I wanted to kind of think about his life, his, his commitment to ideas, the stuff you were talking about, you know, packing on a promise, and also his vision about the culture. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that a lot of people had a very narrow conception of what his own vocation was about. Mm -hmm. And I knew they had misconceptions, including in our community. Right. You know, some people were asking me, why would you write a book about a guy who sold drugs? Right. I said, they write books every year about people who sell people. Right. Right? Right. So Thomas Jefferson Absolutely. and George Washington and right, all that. So I said, at the very least, we have to consider a man who understood that he had to reject that negative disposition and orientation, and he's been a, quote, legitimate businessman far longer than he sold crack. Right. Right? And we know that many American families began in illicit, ill-gotten gain. Absolutely. Johnny Walker read, then you got a president in your tree. And so many people have built their careers on illicit activity in the culture. So I wanted to talk about three big things. His notion of hustling. Right. And, and as you know, and, and thank you for reading the book, mm -hmm. you know, there's an American historian, a very conservative one, Pulitzer Prize winner, who said that the central motif of American history is hustling, mm -hmm. right? In both the good and bad way. Mm -hmm. Hustling in sense of always on the make, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents, as Tupac said, trying to see the next venture, the next business, and so on. But it's also the con man mm -hmm. uh, part of hustling. So I said, well, Jay-Z had it right all along. These young people who were hustling in the streets, backs against the wall, shifts in manufacturing to service industries, decentering them in urban space, left without resource so that their only and ready response was to engage in underground economies, whether it was selling drugs or fencing stolen goods and the like. So I want to talk about his hustling in the, in the underground economy, but also hustling in the, in the legitimate sense. Right. And how he has become a billionaire from that. Then the second part was his poetry. Mm -hmm. And you know, people were praising poets and stuff, and I do. I studied poetry from the, from the time I was a kid, won my first blue ribbon at 11 years old, so, uh, well, really 10. So I loved poetry, but he wasn't getting the credit for what he deserved, you know. And even among rappers, he wasn't seen as one of the elite poets like a Nas right. or Rakim. Right. And I was like, no, he's got, he's got mad skills. His cleverness masks the kind of complicated nuance, simile, metaphor, enjambment, prosody, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I said he's like Robert Frost with a Brooklyn accent, read a dove with a Jesus piece, right? <laughs> and then I, I break down all of the kind of poetic meters he uses mm -hmm. and so on, his rhyme scheme and, and, and the like. And then finally, I uh, talked about his politics because a lot of people think he right. was just about, as you were talking about, the bling, the influence, and so on. And he was saying stuff like uh, Bin Laden, Bin happening in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Back then, back when police was Al-Qaeda, the black man. So when you break that down, he's been talking about slavery, he's been mm -hmm. talking about economic inequality, he's talking about therapy, he's talking about the misuse of therapy for young black kids, 
um, and the like, all, of, all hidden in his lyrics. Right. And you got to really listen to it as you were talking about seeing and hearing, mm -hmm. trying to be up on, posting up on a social media platform while you're missing right. the true ingredients of greatness. So I wanted to, to talk about that and, and really put him in a different atmosphere because I've written books on Obama and Marvin mm -hmm. Gaye and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X um, and the like. But I wanted to put him in that and Nas and, and Tupac. I wanted to put him in a greater company so we could understand his, his tremendous cultural contributions. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, uh, when you talk about like therapy and black kids and misuse mm. of it, you know, I think at some point the culture, right, mm -hmm. bought into it. Right. And everyone thought, like right now, you know, it's cute to be going to therapy. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, and I was with my therapist today and mm -hmm. they're probably not getting much out of it because it's all the post, you know, like my therapist said this today. I'm like, you ain't even had time to process that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> That's true, too. But when the culture <laughs> buys into something like therapy for black boys or research on our mm. community in ways mm. that are not going to benefit us, tell us a little bit about what it means to really expose that. Because the thing with Jay-Z and you talk about it, it's, it's not intentionally indiscreet, right? But I think you mm. get so caught up in the beat mm -hmm. that you're not listening to the lyrics. Right. What, what's the damage behind having such a brilliant poet mm -hmm. that you're really not hearing? No, that's, that's, that's a great point. Like some gospel music. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Right? Or opera. I mean, all yeah. the brilliant points you're making, most forms of art mesmerize us with their extraordinary achievements and may mask some of their underlying, undergirding intelligence and insight. Mm -hmm. uh, the beautiful thing about black culture, think about it, Thomas Jefferson writing in Notes on Virginia basically diss black music, which makes him look kind of crazy right about now. Absolutely. But if, it, if we couldn't do anything, what we could do is black music. But he was talking about European modalities and harmonies and melodies and stuff, and we come in more with a backbeat, eventually the drum, the beat, the bass. So if, if for black people, if you can't move my behind, you can't stimulate my brain, yeah. right? So, and, and, you, and you do have to catch up, let's be real. Yeah. Yeah. But in order to be, in order to listen to the music in the first place, like, nobody understood what James Brown was really saying. <laughs> right. right? I mean, when he started, you did. Yeah. But then when he got in on the one with the funk music, you know, you know, yeah. he, he was the first mumble rapper in that sense. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the baby so learned from him, huh? They definitely <laughs> learned from him. But then when you were ensnared by the beat, then, as you said, you pay attention to the underlying message. And the thing about black people in terms of the culture, we had to mask our meaning. I know. We couldn't afford to tell the truth straight out because mm -hmm. we didn't want white folks to know what we were doing. Right. So green trees abandoned, ain't got long to stay here. Right. We signifying to black folk, Harriet coming through in the springtime, green trees abandoned, mm -hmm. ain't got long to stay here, so she's gonna be here. Or when we made those quilts, with the, you know, marks on them and all the arrows and white folks saying, oh, it's a very interesting pattern. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> black people like make a left at the Johnson Plantation and get your butt up out of here, right? Right. <clears throat> so. And you know they couldn't tell us east or west because I still can't do that. You got to oh, give me a landmark, okay? <laughs> exactly. Make a left at the Johnson Plantation. <laughs> right. So the thing is, is that we had to engage in deliberate mystification 
and in in one sense disguise in order to communicate our truth. We still do that. Signification is about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Are we using it appropriately? Well, look, look at the election that just went down. Oh gosh, you're gonna make my. But check this out though. So, 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 wife, we're prognosticating Joe Biden is finished, is done. We began in Iowa and New Hampshire. Negroes in South Carolina. Right. Right. And we haven't even voted yet. And in Super, look at Super Tuesday last night. So, I I was interviewing um, yesterday Jim Clyburn. Okay. Right. About to turn 80. Uh huh. Right. Wife died last year, 58 years of marriage. South Carolina, he's the number three in Congress, the whip. Yeah. He said, my daddy told me, old, old preacher, you can't never tell folk what's on your mind for real because when you for real tell them, you give them an advantage over you and you hand them the implement and tool of your destruction. So, so in that sense, even though we're in this, you know, 2020, yeah, we still got to hide because we're still in the South. We're still with the recrudescent white supremacy. Bigotry is on the rise, yeah. the hate of blackness. So we don't always tell white folk what we be thinking. Yeah. Fannie Lou Hamer said that the real mistake white folk made was to put us behind them. And when they put us behind them, we had to study everything about them. Mm-hmm. They don't know nothing about us, but we know everything yeah. about them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in that sense, I think in that sense, the, the masking of it, but let me get back also to what you said about uh, the brilliant point you made about the kind of therapy. Because mm-hmm. when we talk about culture versus Christ, for black folk, I've never bought into the kind of irredeemable tension between Christ and culture for us because our culture was an extension of our Christian origin and sensibility. So that black people, not all of it, I'm not saying there was no division between what we call the sacred and, and Negroes called the circular, uh, <laughs> the, the secular. Uh-huh. What I am saying, however, is that the point you made about white evangelicals, if you got Paula White telling people that if you don't believe in Donald Trump, you are really not a Christian and right. you're going to hell, cons- well, then I'm an atheist. I know, make me one too. I'm an atheist, right? So the thing is, our cultural bulwark was often an extension of the black church phenomena, even if they didn't go. Sam Cooke, Luther Vandross, Aretha Franklin, Roberta Flack, even if Negroes didn't grow up in the church, the church grew up in them. Yeah. So we created a cultural possibility. Now, when some of us say, oh, you don't need no therapy, all you need is Jesus. No, right. no, no, no. Right. You, you know, you need chemicals too now. Absolutely. You need modification yeah. and talk therapy. Yeah. And Jesus created that as yeah. an opportunity for you to think more seriously and in a sustained fashion about your life. So in that sense, yeah, I think the culture is, is powerful and poignant and it does contain a lot of stuff, especially in black America, that we need to pay attention to. And let's be honest, sometimes the culture has outstripped the church well, in terms yeah. of this. In terms of being more progressive, I mean yeah. progressive in the sense of acknowledging people's humanity, mm-hmm. right? The church catches up with the culture. The culture mandates that gay and lesbian, transgender, bisexual people be treated a certain way. The church still dissing them, knowing that the church is full of gay and lesbian people, right. but can't acknowledge them in the way the culture forced them right. to deal with it. Right. So I think God is bigger than church and culture. God yeah. is above it all. Yeah. And God can use either one mm-hmm. to get God's will done. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm with you. Can I go a little ratchet really quickly? Mm. For the culture. Can you please write a book on my best friend Cardi B and her <laughs> business? <laughs> you know, like, I really do. These is bloody shoes. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so here's the thing, you know, when I look at Cardi B, like, I only watch Love and Hip Hop in New York. I'm not really a fan of the New York one. Right. But I saw her on there. She was hilarious, and I didn't know she had a real following. But what she's done business-wise has been amazing. Oh, she's phenomenal. She yeah. is, but here's the tricky part of it. Mm. You know, in the church, wants you to be, you know, you can be wild, but you got to give it all up, mm. and then God blesses you. Uh, Cardi B is like, I was wild, I'm still wild, I give God credit for what God is doing in my life, mm. and I don't really know how to shake this ratchet in me, and God is still blessing me. Like, she literally says this on social media. Yeah. Christians have a problem with that, but what is that doing to impact the culture in a way that should be positive for Christianity. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant point. First of all, I mean, Cardi B, what she has done in terms of transforming her own life, right? When you said before, you ain't gonna, you ain't gonna rob me. You yeah. love a lot of stuff, but you ain't gonna rob me. Not me. She, is, she has monetized she has. what folks saw as her unique idiosyncratic behavior, right? right? So that what she's been able to do, right, um, in a way to to, to talk about her own particular lifestyle and orientation and have it expressed rhetorically and then have the culture catch up to her, what they would usually demonize, an Afro-Latina, right. right? Latinx culture joined with African-American culture and then her forge a connection with uh, Offset, Offset, right? It, 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 and having a baby and the marriage and on their own terms and then his difficulty and then his cheating and then her putting him out and then forgiving him, right? That whole playing out of her life, and then her, her ability to channel the everyday woman of color, mm -hmm. and as you call it, deeply rooted in ratchet culture. Mm -hmm. And the reason we shouldn't be so judgmental about it is because all of us were lumped together under ratchet when we got here, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. That, that was the whole point. Absolutely. That's the reason black folk became even super holy because we wanted to prove to white folk that we were not as loose and promiscuous yeah, as they said. respectability, yeah. Respectability politics that Evelyn uh, Brooks Higginbotham came up with. But here's the tragedy and here's the irony. You trying to prove your humanity to people who are already murdering you. Right. Right? right. So already you know they are at a moral deficit and an ethical remove from you from the get-go. Yeah. So what Cardi B does is remove the pretense that she's aiming at respectability when she know y'all doing the same thing I'm doing and I'm doing it at a higher rate. And right. then when you think about the fact that what she understands, some people who are Christian, they ain't changed their way, they just aged out of their sin. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So that's uh, like when they say. <laughs> right, you, you, you just, you just can't do it no more. Right, that's what they say, you know. You just can't do it I no more. I used to do that, you know. You just can't do it no more. And so, as that level, since you aged out, yeah. now you make, you, make your, you make your inability a blessing. Right. You try to sanctify what essentially you can't do. Because you broke as down. Like you meant to do it. You right. ain't meant to do it, you can't do right. it. Right, and don't nobody want to see you do it, you know? And, and Cardi B, Cardi B has been honest, and look, look how she's used her platform. Absolutely. When she challenged those politicians. She surely did. Right, Chuck Schumer said, hey, I would repeat what she said. I can't say it like <laughs> she said it. 
but she went in yeah. on these right-wing politicians and the like. So yeah, I mean, Cardi B is worthy of a serious book and a serious class and a serious conference. There's no question about that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You talk about aging out of your sin and... Uh, <laughs> it's clean, totally clean. Um, I remember when Jay-Z came out and talked about like therapy and like finally hitting the point where he was like emotionally mature. Right. So people are like, oh, he's just maturing at 50. I'm like, well, no, he was obviously mature, right? Mature people, immature people can't become billionaires if you're immature in certain ways, right? right, right. So I didn't want to dismiss him as immature. I don't think he was immature. I think he was emotionally immature. Mm -hmm. So I keep having this conversation with people and do you think black men are maturing emotionally later? Do you think it is something that, while it can't be exclusive, is it a general thing? Or do you think sometimes when you have a certain amount of success, you become almost a dwarf in some other areas mm. because you're not mm. really right. made to grow up? So what's right. happening behind that? No, that's, that's brilliant stuff right there. Um, <laughs> let's be honest. As they say, regardless of race, Women just more mature than men, period. I mean, I that's agree. just. That, that, now, I know men get upset. I'm just saying, we tend to catch up to y'all. Let's be real, yeah. right? First of all, because the culture spoils us in a certain way. Mm -hmm. What they say about black women? Raising your daughters but loving your sons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, that's, that's tricky. Now, I don't want to demonize black women because right, black right, women right. have been the. The, the bulwark of our success in this Absolutely. culture, right? Black women have tried to save both black communities and the nation. Right. Look how they voted. 54% of white women voted for Donald Trump eligible voters. Right. Black women in the 80s and 90s on the other side. So when white women get revelation about what to do, black women are already there. Yeah. So black women are more mature than most other human beings. And there's no question, right? And much wiser than even their compatriots uh, for the most part. So yeah, I think that, that black men's emotional maturity exists because, what, what did Chris Rock say? A man is as faithful as his options, yeah. right? And if you got multiplicities of options, you will do, like my son used to be saying in the, in the basement, mm -hmm. like all oh, these chicks calling me, stop lying, Negro. <laughs> you know, you're singing a song, but you've had one girl call you in the last month. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure what you're talking about, right. but you are not old, dirty bastard. <laughs> Even though you might be an old, dirty bastard, right? So the thing is, is that, that, that men have possibilities of exploration of their own talent, skill, ability, desire, in a way that women don't have, right? The freedom right. to explore that. And when women do, under the feminist uh, notion of self-exploration, they're often demonized and Absolutely. the like, or called ratchet. Men are called sowing their wild right. seeds and going out. Women right. are called ratchet and hoe right. because they do the same thing, right. right? And so the reality is, is that women have had to grow up, have been forced to be more mature uh, in a way that women and men haven't. Now, your excellent point about Jay-Z, think about it. He says, I can't see him coming down my eyes, so I'll make the song cry. Yeah. Now, already that tells you he's a sensitive soul. Right. He's vulnerable, because even in the song, right, first the fat boys break up, now every day I wake up and somebody got a problem with hold right on that song. But then he talks about on song cry, he's talking about his vulnerability and what happened to him early on, and now 
He is emotionally distant. That's why big pimping comes out. Okay. I have no emotion. I have no feeling. Mm -hmm. But even before then, where does it come from? Now all my teachers couldn't reach me, and my mama couldn't beat me hard enough to match the pain of my pop not seeing me. Right. So with that disdain in my membrane, got on my pimp game, yeah. Yeah. blanked the world, my defense came. Oh, yeah. now he's giving you a psychological deconstruction of his emotional distance because father absence has made him harsh. Yeah. Ironically enough, toward the very women who could be his redemption. Now, so he, he does big pimping, he keeps them at a distance, song, cry, I can't see him coming down my eyes because he's distant from that emotion. And so then, when on 444, he says, I apologize. You grew faster than me. You were more mature than me. Yeah. He's talking to a woman who's 12 years is, is a junior. Right. Beyonce. Now, she's right. phenomenal on every level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question about that. Right. Right. <laughs> and at the same time, he's saying that you were more mature than me. You got there faster than I did. And, 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 and the bane and the glory of black women's existence is that they have often forgiven black men into their better selves. Mm -hmm. Right. So, because without that forgiveness, yeah. without that forgiveness, if Beyonce had just said no, right, and turned her back on him, you know, it would have been tough. And, right, because Lemonade was tough as it is. Yeah, yeah. Right, you know I'm saying, I'm sorry, not so sorry, I'm going to bounce to the next thing on the next, right? She's just telling him, that's what I'm going to do. Right, right. And he has to hear that. But on the other hand, he also was mature enough not to write a not to write a defense. He could have lied about it because she never called his name. She didn't. See what I'm saying? That's yeah. what I'm saying about black people and signifying. She ain't never had to call That's his true. name because you knew what she was talking about. That's true. Right? But she ain't got to say Jay-Z. Right. Sean Yo. Carter. <laughs> elevator man. Right? <laughs> she, ain't, she ain't say nothing about that. Yeah. All she got to do is signify through trope and metaphor and intense poetic passion. Sorry, not sorry. Stay gracious. Best revenge. Get your paper. So, so, so Beyonce engaged in that signification, and, and, and Jay-Z took responsibility, finally, for coming to grips. And he said it shouldn't have taken me that long. He yeah. acknowledges that, because yeah. so many of us men have not been forced to confront the necessity for a certain kind of maturity. So on that album, it's so remarkable because he takes responsibility for what he did, what he failed to do, how he failed to live up to it. And, 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 and wearing this jacket, because Kobe Bryant was my man, right? Yeah. And now, you know, that was, that was a hurt piece for me, yeah. right? Um, and we talked and we, you know, and I wrote the piece on him for Slam Magazine, called him the greatest of all time, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, obviously, he made a mistake as well yeah. at a certain level. But then at his death, of course, people were trying to make like his mistake was one thing and not another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the thing is, is that, look, it went to 14 months in the legal system. The woman chose not to right, testify. Now, we know in a, in a Me Too culture, women are often silenced right. and, and coerced into complicity with the very system that hurts them. But at the same time, if we're going to have reputational harm and damage imposed upon a guy, then we got to talk about her case was kind of complicated as well. Right. And the reason, right, we ain't got to go there, yeah. but there were, some, there were some countervailing circumstances that suggested it might not have happened the way she said it happened. Because right. the tragedy of Me Too is that it, it's, it's, it, it signs on to something black people can never give access to, can never consent to. Mm -hmm. like, to be, to be alleged to have done something is to be guilty. Well, slow down with that. Because right. that meant we were raped, we were lynched, mm -hmm. that black man there, they took us out of jail, no trial. Right. 
and castrated us and hung us. As much as I love me too, believe women is not a good credo. Believe people who tell the truth is better. Black folk ain't never said the following. Believe Negroes. No. We know Negroes lie too. (laughs) Jay-Z got us. we, We don't believe you. You need more people. We ain't never said believe Negroes. Believe Negroes to tell the truth. And if we say believe women, do we believe Carolyn Bryant, who said that Emmett Till right. Right, right. looked at her? Well, first of all, even if he did, looked at you? Right. He had looked at, at you, mm-hmm. but then she lied and said she lied. Right. Should we have believed Tom, Tawana Brawley? Right, when she said that the man raped her and she lied straight up. Mm-hmm. So let's trust and verify. Let's, let's, let's listen, your point. Let's hear women. But belief automatically, this is where the white feminist understanding of it is different from black feminist understanding. And I'll say this, it's not that black feminists don't want justice, they do. Demand accountability, they do. Call out black rapists, and they do. The irony is we were defending Bill Cosby, right? Defending Bill Cosby, and he's going around talking about young black people. Right, right? remember they, remember all Remember all, those all this stuff he said? Yeah. And then he said the name the kids Shaliqua, Taliqua, Muhammad, yes. and they're all in jail? Yep. Guess he thought they needed some company. I but what's think interesting, so. right? Oh, it's hard because Negroes believed them, oh, dogging yeah. them, yep. right? While at the same time, not understanding the complicated and nuanced perspective of black people were being dissed. So, so the thing is, is that we have never, right, black feminists have often understand it's about restorative justice, not about vengeance. Right. And to me, that's a critical difference. So to say all that, to say, yes, there is a deep and profound emotional maturity that needs to evolve on the part of men. We have not been forced culturally to do so. I don't want to essentialize it like Mm -hmm. all men don't have it. Many men who are tender and vulnerable and self-reflective and critical, but the the reality is for the most part in this culture, women are forced to grow up in a way that men are not. Men are mollycoddled to a certain degree and then excused for certain practices and activities that would never be excused for men. That's for women. That's why, that's why Cardi B is such a striking figure because she's living her life like a man yes, doing her is. thing with her options mm-hmm. and holding her man accountable at the same time. She that's is. a different kind of reality, and I think that's the kind of thing we need to pay attention to so with Jay-Z. I think we have to end, but I mm-hmm. have to ask this. Um, when I saw the Snoop and Gail and all those things, Mm. Um, beyond just the how Snoop handled it, because yeah. it wasn't the right journalistic part that was the issue, right? Mm. It was the other extra commentary she was given with the extra black woman fair, like, mm-hmm, because she didn't go back. You know, that kind of attitude right. that he felt. But beyond that, this is my greater question. If someone assaulted the legacy of a black woman who was an icon, would Boosie and Snoop nope. and the nope. world nope. go off? No, of course not. I mean, look, he, he, the brilliance of what you're pointing to, and it's an extension of the point you made previous about maturity. Now, I, I talked to Snoop right before he issued the apology. I know they're saying he talked to so-and-so. I'm telling you, I talked to him. Yeah. Right? I had called it him. Called it him. And, uh, and he had answered it. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, he took my call. So, uh, falling back on Annie, where the hell if I gangster lane? Get a fucking on the mic like an old batch of collard greens. It's the capital S O yes, I'm fresh in double O P D O double G Y D O double G, you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he, 
I got, I got love for Snoop. I yeah. love Snoop. Yeah. Snoop is an amazing man. Bill Cosby talking that stuff. Snoop talking that stuff, but Snoop at home with his wife. Right. He ain't doing nothing but right. the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but he was wrong. Yeah. Now, I said, my man... Even in my, because my, my thing went viral, that my defense of Gail King, because I want to defend Gail you can't, first of all, even if you disagree with her and you got a legitimate disagreement, you can't be calling her the B word, right, bro. Right. You know, out there in the public space, legitimating and reinforcing the hatred of black right. women. That's number right. one. Number two, um, you know, if you look at Gail King's entire interview, right, if you're fair about it, yeah. she said, at one point to Lisa Leslie, after the, the famous where, you know, she went at her, right. were like, no, you wouldn't be objective right. because she was friend, right? Uh -huh. After that, she goes, you know what? Or maybe it's the fact we shouldn't even be talking about this because mm -hmm. A, it's too soon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and B, it had a resolution. Right. The case did. It ain't like it right. was unresolved. Right. right. You might not like it, but the case was legally resolved. Right. And she said... And so she acknowledged that. And had she we listened long enough, it wasn't but a five-minute interview, but attention span is so shrunken. And CBS knew what they were doing, taking that quick Taking clip. that thing out. And then she, you know, she throw them under the bus, she right. throw me under the bus. I'm like, I'm going to have to employ Gail if she keep going at CBS. Y'all got five <laughs> on it, because I don't know if they're going to take it for too long. Well, the thing is, that's a very, very interesting point. But the thing is, is that when she, when she asked the first question, I told him, I said, look, as a journalist, if this happened in his life, that may be perceived as a legitimate thing. But listen, I said, but look at what you missed. Look at what you missed. Yeah. Take, take it this way. Gail King knows that white folk have been talking about Kobe as a rapist. And a white actress said he was a great ball player, you know, he was a heroic to many people, and he was a rapist. I took tremendous offense to that. Absolutely. First of all, because that was not the legal decision. Right. And on top of that, if you're going to talk about what somebody said about somebody, please don't bring that young woman's reputation up because it's skanky. That's true. Right? Now, now, we're not allowed to say that in the Me Too era right. because we look like we're victim shaming. And I get that. And I don't want to victim shame. Right. But how do you then defend a man when the woman bragged about the sexual encounter with him to start with? Mm -hmm. See? Especially with his black male prowess. Right. Let me just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, right, and, and again, we don't want to victim shame because even if she was promiscuous to her end day. If she Absolutely. said no, no meant no, right. right? So I'm not saying that. But on a one-man crime, who you believe, mm -hmm. right? One person is there, he, I mean, two people, he and yeah. she, right? And it was more complicated, right? Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Believe women, very complicated credo, and it's, women deserve better than that. So here's my point. So when Gail King is doing that five-minute interview, that stuff comes out. But what she understood is white folk are talking about that. So let me throw you an easy question right down the middle of the plate so you can knock that sucker right. out the park. Yeah. And Lisa Leslie killed it. As his it. friend. As his and friend. She did. And she yelled it. Now, where Snoop had a problem and other people had a problem, and Gail King admitted, maybe the follow-up was when she said, oh, you wouldn't know it. Yeah. Then you're vulnerable because people could say, well, you, when Charlie Rose, Hello. your co-anchor right. was taken down, you said there are two sides there right, in the story. Right, she did defend him. So, peep now. I might say, look, and I love Gail King and I love Oprah, and I heard from both of them, and I talked to them during this, this ordeal. How, how Oprah doing after her fall? <laughs> I just want to make sure she okay, <laughs> Dr. Dyson. Well, she fell on more money than you and I will ever discover, baby. Let me say that. Let me say that. And got up to the same amount. She might have had an increase. 
So, <laughs> following that wallet is a whole is a deep thing. It was cushy. But uh, it was cushiony. But the, here's the thing, though. But there's a legitimate way, and I went talking to Gail. Gail even admitted herself. There's, you can be critical of her. You could say that, hey, that second part puts you in a different situation because the perception of so many black people out there was Gail and Oprah are going after black men in a way they ain't going after these white boys, like Harvey Weinstein and stuff like that. Now, they have a legitimate... I was about to say, that's legit. They can say that, but they also have a legitimate response. They can say, look, Harvey Weinstein, they talked about it. They did say these things. Uh, Oprah had how many shows? Maybe 200? on rape and rape culture and abuse and stuff. So please don't get amnesia. Yeah. And after amnesia, yeah. don't. But see, this is the part of cancel culture. Right. You reduce somebody's life to, to this event. Life. And this is what I would tell millennials, the cancel culture will come back on you because when your black butt gets canceled, it will. And, you looking, and you looking for an out where one thing I did, 30 years I did great. I messed up one time, right. now you gonna write me right. out? Right. So Gail King has done far more for black folk than that, so is Oprah. And let me tell you something. And, and, and Kobe was my dear friend. They played, you know, I was on Tamron Hall. They played Kobe hugging me like a long hug, like a mm -hmm. black man. I love you hug. Yeah. Because that was my man. And, um, and, and so I felt that. And so when I defended Gail, it's not because I didn't respect and love Kobe. It's because I respected and loved the process whereby even if somebody made a mistake, you ain't got to kill them. Yeah. And, and black men have overreacted so much. To answer your question, dude, if you mad at what happened to Kobe, look at what has happened to black women on a daily right. basis. Right. And, right. and you ain't got no holler. Right. You have no defense, first of all, because you done been too busy calling a woman to B-I-T-C-A. Right. And a hood rack and a chicken head and a skeezer. And because the world has consumed your art, some men think they can go up and pat them on the behind in Italy because of what you said in Compton. Right. So, so let's not pretend that that's the case. And on top of it, that we have not been as sensitive to the plight and predicament of black women and standing for them. Let's be honest, black women have stood for black men far more than black men have stood yeah. for black women. That's just the truth. Yeah. That's just the truth. And, and I'll end by saying this. Black women have readily defended black men about being assaulted by white supremacist culture, white women and men, far more readily and willingly than black men have turned the tables Absolutely. and tried to acknowledge the degree to which black women have been hurt and assaulted in this culture. So I think there's no question about that. And then these same black men have been the ones that reproduce the pathology of colorism too. Absolutely. These little rappers, them, oh, don't bring me no dark skinned oh, black yeah. woman, I want a light skinned blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So you reproducing, just like we talk about white privilege, we gotta talk about light privilege. Absolutely. And we gotta talk about the color distinction and hierarchy in our community. So black men have a lot to own up to. Beautiful, I love black men. I, I, I done wrote so. many, many books on black men, but at the same time, let's be honest. Yeah. Sisters deserve to be supported. And one thing now, when I, when I did that thing on Gail King, I can't tell you how many sisters I heard from. My God, thank you, finally a black man yeah. stood up for a black woman yeah. in public without, yeah. without an asterisk, right. without apology, right. and did for So we need to do much more of that. There's no question about that. Absolutely, mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. Kaya, one more time, let's put our hands together. I think we saw history in the making tonight. The Dr. Michael Eric Dyson and the Reverend Dr. Brianna K. Parker. Ooh-wee! That worship touched my soul. I hope it touched yours as well. 
Listen, I want to thank you for watching, for worshiping, and for being part of our witness today. Get the word of God and the worship moved upon your heart, and you want to continue to support the great things that God is doing at Alfred Street. You can give electronically, online, through our app, or even our text to give option. I once heard a sermon, and afterwards someone said, is the sermon done? And the ushers respond to us, the sermon's over, but it has yet to be done. You just received a word from the Lord. Worship's over. Now let's go live the word and get it done. It's Pastor Wesley. See you next worship service.